all things early career recruitment, the strategies to help you succeed. We'll help you work with Generation Z with all the information that you'll need. It's the Jack and Ollie Show. Okay, we are recording. Hello and welcome to the Early Careers Podcast with me, Jack Denton. And me, Ollie Sidwell. And today we have a special guest on the show, Charlie Ball. For anybody who... Hi, Charlie. (laughs) For anyone who doesn't know Charlie, which is probably everyone, um, Charlie is the Head of Higher Education Intelligence um, with Prospects at JISC. Is that wrong? That's wrong. (laughs) It's it's close enough. I'm the labour market nerd at JISC. The labour market nerd. So Head of Higher Education Intelligence... For prospect at JISC. That's right. Okay, I'll do that <laughs> bit again. We can do that bit again, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hello and welcome to the Early Careers Podcast. I'm Jack Denton. And I'm Ollie Sidwell. And today we have a special guest, Charlie Ball. Hi, Charlie. Hello. Um, for anybody who doesn't know Charlie, which is probably nobody, um, Charlie is the head of higher education intelligence prospects at JISC. 17 years been doing this, so uh, maybe, Charlie, you could give us a bit of an intro and uh, explain what you've been doing for the last 17 years. Yes, uh, basically, that's a very, very good question. What have I been doing in my life? I'm this <laughs> in-house labour market nerd is probably the best way of putting it. Head of higher education intelligence, uh, you know, it's a, it's a job title we came up with rather than call me head of research because I don't really do any research, I just do analysis. So not to confuse people. I threw, a, threw, a, threw a, a comedy job title into the mix and then people accepted it. So if there's, <laughs> so anything... there's a better warning there. If anybody asks you to name your own job title, think very, very carefully. Yeah, and so people will, uh, will know you most from your uh, weekly updates you've been doing, certainly over, over the summer about the, the graduate labour market, uh, how it's changed so much. You know, I certainly see them a lot on LinkedIn and uh, share them internally. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's right, Ollie. And um, I've... I've, I've generally showing up and causing trouble at conferences and events up and down the country. <laughs> if you remember back in the olden days when we were allowed to use leave our houses and, and go to places, I used to do quite a lot of that back in the day. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I kind of wander up and down the country talking to people about the labour market in general um, and, and presenting data on things like um, local labour markets, skill shortages, postgraduates, labour market myths and all this kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, I've been around for a little while. Okay, yeah. that's, you, you, your job is to take all the data that you, that's given in the market and try and analyse and interpret it and give some stories for people to have a prediction of the future, see what's going on, and just understand the market, basically. That, that's right. I try to turn all the data into human, basically, so yeah. that um, uh, inform lay people and, and professionals in employability and careers and recruitment um, can take all this pretty complex data um, environment and actually be able to use it in a practical way. Um, and and that, that's what I've been doing for quite some time. So, um, yeah, my, my background is um, is in the hard sciences and working with complex data sets. So I'm an example of how you can adapt a, co- a qualification, in my case, in analytical chemistry, something that ostensibly looks quite different, but is actually, you know, really related. Because all I've ever done is, taking complex data and try to make it intelligible to people. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole um, range of different directions we could go in and different things we could talk about. But what we wanted to talk about um, 
today was what happens in early careers labor markets during downturns. So um, it looks like we're almost certainly going to be going into a downturn, this time as a result of COVID um, and the pandemic. Um, However, it's not the first downturn in the market. So rather than focusing on um, what's going on um, right now as something in isolation, trying to look back over time and try and pull out some general things that we can see happens almost always in in market contractions and what that might mean for the people who are who are listening yeah excellent and and there are uh, and it's an interesting area because obviously yeah, we, we are in a downturn um it's an unusual one very unusual one uh, reasons that we'll we'll talk about later um some of them are obvious some of them not so obvious we might be uh, might be about to go into another downturn but really they're all part of the same they're all part of the same um event um, and we'll all link together in the labour market. And so there are some lessons we can draw from previous recessions, but there are also some lessons that we shouldn't draw. And, and, and it's important to look at some of the things that have happened in the past and that some people are thinking might happen this time around and having a look at what happened then and why they're not as likely to happen this time around. So that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to cover. Um, right. I'm, I'm going to hit people with quite a lot of stats, but hopefully in a digestible way. And so, uh, and the important thing is, if, when I when I do quote when I do quote data, don't get too hung up on the actual numbers, because really, you know, we're all flying a little bit blind in this particular situation. Um, and um, as 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 the last twenty four hours have shown us, sometimes things like oh, I don't know, opinion polls don't necessarily give us a true guide of what's actually going to happen. And, and sometimes, you know, past is only a bleak or it can be a guide but in in the broadest term rather than in detail okay so what sorts of things can do we tend to see during downturns and what sort of the key well i mean that's a really good question the most crucial one the one that that can't be stressed enough is that downturns exacerbate disadvantage of all kinds right including the graduates facing disadvantage so whilst we are stressing about graduates in the labor market for good reason because the labor market out there for graduates is very very difficult um, we must bear in mind that graduates are faring by and large the best of all, of all people. There, there, there's not been a downturn. There is unlikely to be one. Um, uh, it's difficult to it's difficult to think of the circumstances of a naturally created downturn um, where the better qualified will fare worse than the worse qualified. So it's important to note that um, the people who will do best in this recession, like in every recession, are white middle-class men right. with professional qualifications. Um, and, and they will fare the least. They're the least likely to be affected, just as they were the least likely to be affected in the last recession. And it's important to stress in the last recession, the, the great recession from 2008 um, onwards, that the by far the most common experience for an employed graduate was for their job to carry on pretty much as normal. They maybe got slightly lower pay rises, but at the same time, their cost of living came down because the interest rates came down. So for most graduates in work, certainly, um, it might be stressful, but the chances are you won't lose your job. So that's the that's the important that's the important thing. The further you are away from that kind of um, from that from that kind of um, you know central best case, 
the more likely you are to suffer disadvantage. So, for example, if you have a disability, if you are not employed full time, if you're a non-graduate, if you are um, from minority ethnic community, if you are a woman, if you are older or younger, um, you are more likely to um, struggle in the labour market. You're more likely to be furloughed. You're more likely to lose your job. Although one interesting fact of this, of, a, of at least the graduate experience in this labour market, is outside of the arts and creative sector, there's not been a lot of job losses. Right. And again, we'll get on to why that uh, why that has been um, shortly. So, um, so as a quick summary of that bit, are you saying that um, in downturns, um, graduates as a general group um, don't fare that badly? So it's not going to be that bad as a general no, group compared proportionally, to proportionally that badly. Now, if we, if we look at the um, the downturn, and, and I'm going to I'm going to ask you a pop quiz here. Um, which year, approximately? was the worst in the last 40 years to, to graduate with a first degree from university. Oh, what do we... Uh, 80s. In the 80s. So you're not thinking this year is one of the worst, because that's what... No, we don't... To be fair, we don't know. We don't know that about year. Got you. There are some indicators that say yes, but there are also some indicators that say um, it's it's bad, but not the worst. All right. That's good but, but you're right. You're right there, Jack. It, it was in the 80s. It was 82. 1982 is the worst year to graduate. Worst year to graduate. How, how come? Uh, highest impl- unemployment rate. And bear in mind, this, yeah. is, this is before. So, so when you're hearing people talk about, you know, this huge university expansion that saturated the market with graduates, um, in fact, um, two of the worst years for, to graduate were in the period reasonably soon before that expansion in the 80s, where we had that um, massive recession in the early 80s. Um, okay. It was extremely difficult, but of course it was worse for non-graduates because we were in the process of a of a, of a very heavy deindustrialization. The nineties were also um, worse to graduate in, but there's a crucial reason why they were worse to graduate in, and I'm, I'm being very careful here, saying they were worse to graduate in. Right. Um, not, it wasn't necessarily worse to to have left you know, left school without qualifications um, in those times than it was in 2008 because it was a really really bad time. But they were worse to graduate in because um, of some of the lessons that were learned in the 90s after the, um, the, the recession of the early 90s. What graduate recruiters did then was they cut all their graduate recruitment. Um, naturally, it was a cost. Um, they were in a severe downturn, yet another severe downturn as they saw it. So they cut their graduate recruitment, didn't recruit any graduates. Then when recovery came around, recovery was quite strong. And it, this happened across... Um, the developed world, but particularly strong in the UK and the US, all these businesses suddenly found they have new t- no new talent. Right, yeah. To capitalise on their capitalise on their uh, their new working environment, and a number of businesses, including some high profile businesses, I remember at the time, for example, Mark, Marks and Spencers blamed their very slow recovery from on the from the recession on cutting their graduate training scheme entirely. So when it came out to the round to the last recession. Um, recruiters were very, very reluctant to cut their graduate training schemes. So what we're saying is, I think this is, so what we're saying here is if you cut your graduate um, recruitment scheme totally, it can actually um, affect your growth coming out of a recession. Absolutely right. I was in the pharma industry at the time um, and I was working for Pfizer, who used to have a very large presence in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kept up graduate, some, some, of their, some of their competitors cut graduate recruitment, Pfizer kept, kept theirs up. 
um, and they they took a significant amount of market share. Right. Um, I think I heard uh, this from and, Gary Argent. I think Gary Argent was telling me this. He was he was talking. He was reminiscing yeah. about the nineties, and he was talking about you know at the time he you know he was working with the um, he's been working in the space, been working with the AGR, you know, formerly. Yeah. And he yeah. was talking about how um, there was this noticeable difference in the firms who cut their programs completely and those who who kept it going. Yeah, absolutely. And so businesses learned that lesson quite, in some cases, quite painfully. And so, um, although there were cutbacks in graduate recruitment, um, firms that could continue to graduate to recruit um, did so. Or if they didn't, they didn't publicise it. The only large employer that I can remember in the last recession that um, stated they were going to cut their graduate, they're going to shell their graduate recruitment scheme were Chorus um, Steel Company, um, and their, their their stock market value immediately dropped. And they reinstated it 12 months later, even though the labor market was worse. Because for, essentially because it sent a signal to the labor to the to the market they, they, were, they were weak, but also the, the advice that they got was this is not going to help you in the long run. It's a short-term problem. But of course, these big graduate recruiters are recruiting graduates for the long term. Mm. There's something you mentioned That's then. You mentioned there, Charlie, that um you were talking about chorus and then they reinstated yeah. it a year later when the yeah. situation was worse. Um, yes. I think that's something you mentioned before, whereby actually often in downturns, um, it's not the year that the thing happens, the crisis, whatever the particular thing is. It's actually the subsequent year or two that has the biggest uh, negative effect in terms that, of... That's right. And the last recession, um, we uh, Northern Rock failed in 2007. Um, the recession didn't officially begin until late 2008, um, even though everybody could see it coming. Mm-hmm. It was it was coming at us, um, but we didn't actually go into recession. And businesses were kind of they were cutting, they were cutting, but we weren't in full blown full blown panic mode. But then the recession itself lasted for quite some time. The downturn in the labour market um, continued until tw- for graduates until twenty thirteen. It might not be the same this time around because um, businesses are assuming this pandemic is going to be relatively time limited. I mean, realistically, we and and, and government across the world have pretty much acknowledged, even ours have acknowledged that we can't go into another lockdown like we did in March. Um, we are going into a more serious one in, in, on, uh, tomorrow, um, a time, uh, a time of uh, recording, um, but um, businesses are to remain open where possible um, instead of instead of closing. People are, people are, are advised to remain working. It's only certain sectors that have been closed. So I think the expectation amongst employers is that business and economic conditions next year will probably be impacted, um, but um, the long, the medium-term and long-run effects of this recession will be significantly more compressed. They'll be more serious but more compressed into a much shorter time scale. And for businesses that are looking to recruit to the long term, um, you know, Cutting a graduate training scheme this year um, for a, a downturn that's going to last a year or two at most, all that will do is you'll cut your nose off to spite your face because by the time those graduates come out of their training schemes and are ready to go into the management roles you've, you've created for them, the recession should actually be over. Um, and you absolutely don't want to find yourself two years down the line with, with no graduate intake. Um what, what happens then is what happened in some sectors that cut back a little too far. So um, the financial services sector, for example, cut the training schemes a little bit too far. So what happened when recovery came down is they spent the next few years 
ferociously poaching staff from one another. Right. The same thing happened in engineering, yeah. um, and, and which was great for the um, pay packet of certain in-demand staff, but not brilliant for the businesses involved, particularly on the medium size end of things who tended to get the um, sharper end of the stick, um, but also for talent recruitment and training. Um, and I think people are very mindful of that and are really, really keen to avoid that. That said, it's all very well to say these things about the bigger recruiters. The bigger recruiters are amongst the least affected. Mm. Um, it's much harder for small businesses to keep up recruitment. Many have tried, but SMEs have, been, SMEs have had a right walloping. Um, and so it is, it's, it's difficult for them, even when they know they ought to be doing it. It's not easy for them to do it. So, you know, there are, there are fine balances. So what can we summarise? Um, what we've learned so far in terms of previous um, recessions is that um, compared to other groups in society, graduates are less affected. However, within, um, within that group or any other group, minority and um, underrepresented groups are affected to a greater extent than usual. That's right. Yeah, the biggest downturns in the market um, in terms of um, the labour market usually occur not in the year of the particular crisis, but shortly afterwards, one or two years sure, afterwards. Yeah. Um, and if you decide to cut or heavily reduce your early careers program, you'll probably pay for that later on. Exactly that. Exactly that. And there are a number of other, there are a few other things that we, we, we need to keep an eye on and that, that we, we are likely to like see. So, for example, we're very likely, one iron rule of recession is that in a recession, uh, more graduate study postgraduate courses and there are a bunch of reasons for that it's very rational right now mm-hmm. because again you have a reasonable assumption that the labor market next year should be at least a bit better than it has been this summer so if you go and do a one-year masters you have a reasonable um, assumption that the next year should be rather better but at the same time you have to bear in mind that a lot of non-vocational masters um, don't actually have a specific employment niche we don't have a big niche in this country for people with general master's qualifications. We do for certain master's degrees, and some of the most in-demand and in-shortage subjects are master's level. So things like surveying, um, specialist social work, mental health nursing, um, occupational therapy are all very, very strongly in-demand. But if you take an MA in history, there are no jobs that specifically ask for that. Not saying they're not valuable, but we are likely to see next summer quite a lot of people coming onto the market with master's degrees looking for master's jobs that aren't there and perhaps um, being a little surprised when they find they're still competing with first degree graduates. So there's a a challenge there for all of us to support those people. We'll also see graduates um, being more inclined to to jobs that prioritise stability and security. So for example, I mean the archetypal example, one we've seen already is you'll see a lot more people applying for teaching jobs. It happens that Mm -hmm. it's quite timely because we have a particular problem uh, with teaching supply. So there's one hidden benefit of COVID, uh, <laughs> that it might help fill a gap, particularly in secondary school teaching, um, that was starting to get to be a real problem because the year seven, the year seven cohort this year and next year is unusually large. Right. Um, so it's going to be, fortunately, it's going to be good news that we should see rather a lot of newly qualified teachers coming onto the market next summer. Is that across uh, all public sector jobs? All public sector jobs become more popular. In, in, in general, we would ordinarily say people go to public sector employment. However, because the last recession also featured very, very severe cutbacks in public sector employment in general, and actually a lot of the, so a lot, for example, the council clerking jobs and NHS 
record staff and so forth went and haven't returned. Um, I don't think those jobs are perceived as being quite secure as they were. Um, what's going to be perceived as more secure are jobs that can be done reasonably easily virtually, so professional services, and IT, um, health set, uh, jobs in the health sector. We, we know from the data that we've got that health sector jobs are now running above their 2019 average, um, such as the demand. We went into the pandemic short of 40,000 nurses. So, you know, if you want to be a nurse, you can be a nurse. You can, you know, the training should be there for you, you and you can be a nurse if you want to. So there's stability and security in those roles. Um, well, te- yeah, so teaching is the archetypical example, and, and that, kind of, that kind of role um, uh, uh, is going to be, and, and, and HE roles um, look secure, although those of us who within our university finances uh, and, and our, your audience university finance departments will be laughing hollowly. At this point, but but sectors like that will 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 seem a little bit more attractive. The important thing to stress about that is that will have a knock on effect on some of the government metrics because people won't be chasing high salary jobs in quite the same way. They're perceived a little riskier. People people will will still look for salary, but they'll be prioritising stability, security, well being rather higher up the list. So is um. So, Sorry, sorry, Jack. I was say, is the um, is the teacher thing a little bit like Bergenomics? So you know yeah. the way the economists, you know, it's a very simple measurement. They take the value of a um, a, um, a Big Mac in different countries to work out the um, price parity of different places, and actually turns out to be a fairly accurate way to do that. And yeah. If you just looked at the number of people who went into teaching, you could probably spot the recessions just by watching that. You, you can definitely do you you can definitely spot a recession one hundred percent of the time for the last fifty years by plotting numbers going into postgraduate study, right. um, and teaching always rises and falls with that. Um, it's just that when we've had a couple of some of some of them some of the more historic ones, um, the thing to bear in mind about teachers and uh, teaching numbers is that occasionally governments intervene, so they can they can slightly bias the numbers. So sometimes you see big teacher recruits. When there hasn't been a recession, just because of eventual teachers. So postgraduate numbers is an abs- absolutely um, iron law. Whenever you see postgraduate numbers co- go up, with actually one exception, I just realised just one exception. And that was the that was the very recent introduction of postgraduate loan schemes because the postgraduate loan scheme was a government um, initiative that was a very popular and b very effective. Um, and, and, Sometimes it's nice to be able to say that the government introduced a scheme that really worked and, and really did what it's supposed to. It was an absolute. It was a, it was an unequivocal success. Um, that's the on, that's the only exception you'll see in the last fifty years. If you plot that data out, um, and I have plotted that data out in case anyone. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I, I do have it. Obviously, um, um, so there's quite a lot of different themes there and like trends you've, you've said that obviously follow the same narrative over the course of time and. You mentioned the recessions we've had previously. Obviously, they go in cycles. Yeah. And you, you see them coming occasionally. Yes. So maybe they, they're more standard in terms of actually the, the narrative and the storylines. Given the difference in this one, even it's like shorter, it's sharper, it's no one saw it coming. Do, do, do you think those, um, I'm sure some of the narratives will continue to play out, but do you think there's any that will be different? That's, absolute, that, that, that's absolutely right, Ollie. That, that's, the, that's one of the crucial points. You almost always see recessions coming. I mean, uh, uh, you know, although, although the um, 
although there, were, there was a lot said about um, in the last recession that the people didn't see it coming, they did. Um, and, and in the UK, we had plenty of warning because it hit the US six to eight months before it hit us. Mm. So, you know, we knew it was happening. Um, and, and that's been the case for most recessions. The, the early 80s recession is the, is the major um, exception. There was a global recession, but we, um, it, it hit us particularly hard. Um, the other example is 2001, um, which was post-September 11 and also post the dot-com crash. And there was actually a global recession, which in the UK we managed to just about avoid um, due to activist government policies. We did see a modest downturn in the graduate labour market, particularly for global employers. But generally, you do see these coming. And of course, we didn't see this coming. We had at best six weeks notice mm-hmm. um, that, that it was all going to go pear-shaped. And I think with the best will in the world, you know, there's a lot of hindsight going on. But I don't think anybody was prepared for quite how serious this was going to get. Um, and so it's caught a lot of, uh, it's caught everybody by surprise. What's been quite interesting and quite refreshing is quite how resilient, adaptable and resourceful we, we've all been, to be honest, um, but business and employers in particular. And, um, and that's one of the crucial features. It, it's, it's happened very rapidly. And it's forced employers basically to do things that if they'd had more time to think about, they may not have actually done. Um, so it characterized as, um, and particularly in terms of, you know, sending huge amounts of their stuff online. There's two interesting points about that. The first is that a lot of employers say, basically, we've gone through about five years of business transformation in four months. Mm. So a lot of it is still shaking out. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is there are an awful lot of employers saying it took a pandemic to really stress test our, our future plans and to put into place our future plans for virtual working, virtual recruitment, virtual assessment. But it turns out they work and they're really good. And and so there, there are an awful lot of people, who, there are an awful lot of employers, and, and this gets onto one of the, one of the topics we'll, we'll, we'll touch on later, is there are, there are silver linings to every cloud. Um, and for employers and for the graduates who work for them in the future, um, what's coming out of this are um, better work placements, um, better recruitment systems, um, better and more flexible modes of working. Um, that you know, probably wouldn't have happened um, without us, and certainly not and not at this rate, that probably wouldn't have happened. And we didn't see that same, same we haven't seen that same kind of shift. The, the previous recessions have generally been occasioned, at least in part, by changes in the nature of work um, or, or, or economic or industrial changes. But this has seen a, a profound shift in the way that people work in a in a way that, um, there were some in the last recession, particularly in terms of um, the advent of the, the, the real um, uh, adoption of the gig economy. Um, but this recession, this, this downturn has gone and disrupted that very, very significantly. Do you think these changes are going to, what impact do you think they'll have on the um, early careers market? Do you think actually... Um, it's going to continue the same, just the way that they do it will um, will change. I think, on, on the one hand, graduates will still say, largely be doing the same kinds of jobs. And one of the interesting things is, um, if you've been following the debate on AI, that's been muted quite significantly over the last few months. Not because people have got hard other things to think about, but 
I think there's a, re a growing realization that AI will be disruptive, but perhaps not to the degree that um, some people have anticipated. Um, one of the crucial things about this, this new virtual working environment is and employers have been very clear in, in surveys that they've done. The for the large majority of them, it's not going to cost jobs. Redeployment and, and reutilization of people, yes, but job losses, not in the main. Um, and, and so the jobs that people will do, people will still be accountants and engineers and HR professionals and marketers and, and chemists and so forth. But the way in which they do them may be, may be somewhat different and, and, and different to the way that they were expecting to do them and require slightly different skills. As, as you know, um, interacting with people online and in a virtual environment is, is different. You don't get the non-verbal cues. You've got to concentrate in different ways. Um, and it resets a lot of our skills, if you like. It brings mm. us all down to we're all finding our way in a new workplace. Um, we're all learning new skills, new things about ourselves, um, and um, it, it may flatten out some of, those, some of the gaps between the experienced and less experienced, which will be interesting. Interesting. Mm. We, uh, we spoke to uh, Chris Bishop in the end of Series 5, yeah. um, and he was talking a lot about um, uh, jobs for the future, what, you know, what are jobs for the future going to look like, and the type of skill sets that uh, young people could and should have. And one of the phrases that he mentioned was this, um, this ability to, to learn, to unlearn and relearn is going to be paramount because there's so many different systems, different things going on that we've all had to adapt really fast. And those that have been accepting of that change and being able to adapt quickly and kind of get on with it are going to get there further. That, that, so that's your right. ability to learn and reskill yourself, you know, we've, we've all done it very fast in many different ways, and that's how you're going to um, improve going forward. That, that's right. And, and, and for all the colleagues that you've got who, who don't understand how to turn their microphones on on Zoom, um, generally, I think um, my experience has been that most people have adapted very, very rapidly and with surprising agility to, to the situation. And this is this is what universities and employers are also saying is that this crop of students, finalists, graduates have adapted in a remarkably resilient and, and, and um, effective way to the, the new situation that they're in. And I think it will make organisations a bit more willing to innovate, um, confident that their staff, the majority of their staff will actually go with them. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, what's the workplace of the future going to be like? Or what's work of the future going to be like? We're living it now. This is what is this is what it's going to be like for a lot of graduates in a way that it wouldn't have been eighteen months ago. A lot of our graduates, particularly the ones who go into professional services, who go into education, go into IT, um, will be working in a blended way. They may not um, have. Uh, they, they, may, they may not be working full time in an office. They may not have a permanent office base in a conventional way at all. They might um, not be living um, eight people in a flat in London, but rather three people on a lovely housing estate outside Reading in the suburbs. That's, that, that, that's right. And, and, and one of the things one of the things that employers are already seeing, um, and, and those who recruited have already seen. I mean, here at Gist, we've seen it happen, happen ourselves. Is that people who wouldn't have applied for our jobs? For geographic reasons, and now applying for our jobs, 
um, very capable people. I mean, one of the one of the things about London, of course, is that it is simultaneously both the place that the majority, the, the largest number of professional graduates aspire to work in, and the place that the large proportion of graduates do not, under any circumstances, want to work in. <laughs> and um, and what a more virtualized workplace means is that that second group can now apply for jobs in London, secure, securing the knowledge that they won't have to live, they don't, won't necessarily have to live there. It might also build on itself as well, in the sense that at the moment, like me personally, the reason why we relocated from the Midlands to London was two. One, when we started the business, one was because we wanted to live in London because that would be fun. And two, yeah. because 90% of our clients or potential clients were based in, in London. Yeah. But if in 10 years' time people decide actually to move their head office or spread their offices across the country, there's less of a draw because um, even if I lived in London, if if 50% of my clients aren't in London, I'm either going to be travelling all over the place or just doing it virtually anyway. That, and that's exactly right. And that, that's the kind of, that's the kind of um, question that employers are asking themselves. I mean, to give you an illustration, PwC this year um, had, their, had a, a record number of recruits in Scotland. They recruited most heavily in Edinburgh. Um, and, and, and they're aware that, um, you know, this, this prevent, presents opportunities. I mean, on a very practical level, and particularly for businesses that have had a tough um, 2020, the opportunity to divest themselves of large amounts of lucrative London real estate, um, high value, high overhead, um, looks attractive, particularly when they may be able to then um, bring in uh, or... or, or uh, buy a state somewhere else that, that will be less expensive. Um, we know, you know, for example, that uh, through a lot of people, Andy Haldane, the chief economist of the Bank of England, um, did, a, did a speech on homeworking um, last week in which he did say that the best thing about homeworking was not having to commute. And, and I think that's, that's very common up here in, up here in the north. Um, I am, uh, I wouldn't say customer, I think more like prisoner of Northern Rail, and and not having had to deal with Northern Rail day in, day out um, for the last six to eight months has been a massive boost to my well-being, Uh, (laughs) although it has has cut certain words almost completely out of my vocabulary. Um, But it's, you know, and and this kind of thing has a profound effect on on the way that people view their lives and their work-life balances. And I think that is going to be a crucial feature because, because one of the things, one of the one of the important secrets about the graduate labour market is people are not really that mobile. And they tend to go, it's mm-hmm. the labour market all over, but the graduate labour market is just the same. People tend to go work, to work in places that they know already. So they tend to go to work either where they're from or where they went to university. Yeah. Um, and anything that can help break that and, and let people from, um, you know, break out of that and, 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 and feel comfortable within their peer support networks or in, or in areas that they like or just plain can afford to live in, um, but allows them a greater range of opportunities to apply for um, can only be a good thing in my view. Mm. When, um, when you spoke earlier, you mentioned about like the uh, um, application and, and the assessment and selection process, certainly for graduates. Um, what, what, what's your insight and how that's changed? Because it, we're seeing it's changing massively um, and there's obviously some stuff for the good and there's some stuff that's being changed rapidly that's actually been so beneficial for companies but equally it hasn't benefited everyone so what, what's your what's your understanding of how that process has worked but now it's been all forced online i think i think at this pro, at this point um 
what seems to what, what seems to be emerging is that recruitment, online virtual recruitment, can be very, very effective. And particularly if you've got a national recruitment scheme and you need to get people from all over, um, all of a sudden you don't have to, you know, your 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 would be recruits don't have to come from all over the country. They can interview um, somewhere that's comfortable for them um, uh, at home or in a shared office space. Um, don't have to do all that travel, and you don't need to get everybody together in one place. Um, um, assessment centres can be very effectively delivered virtually. Again, you don't you don't have to hire expensive venues or find expensive spaces um, and coordinate everything. You can you can do all of these things online um, and interviews and so forth. They, they they can work quite well. What's not quite so straightforward to do is is the onboarding side of things um, and um, or the induction and onboarding. And, and I think there are still aspects of that, and particularly for jobs that um, are currently virtual but are likely to be um, more likely in the future to have more of a balance in the office with teams. Um, some aspects of those remain and, and will remain a bit of a challenge for employers. So um, there are some things that look like to stick, virtual virtual interviewing, recruitment, assessment methods. Um, the best of those, the ones that minimise cost and are more efficient and makes it easier to bring in a more diverse a range of good quality talent, they will obviously stick. Um, you, you'll see refinements. Um, it'll be interesting to see what different industries come up with because I suspect at least for the next few years you'll see different different industries doing things slightly differently. Um, you won't see one a standard of one-size-fits-all. Um, uh, but I think we'll, we'll hasten towards an environment that makes it easier for everybody, all the principals involved, to interview. Now, of course, you're absolutely right. This doesn't work for everybody. So if you're a student, as, as Jack said, if you're a student in a big shared house with um, crap broadband um, and a load of people coming in and out all, all, all the time, it's not very easy. Or you're a parent or a carer. Doing virtual interviews um, may be more of a challenge than travelling to an interview where you can put all, put all of that behind you. Um, there are people who um, are not comfortable um, for one reason or another, with doing um, virtual interviews, or find, find it difficult, um, find accused difficult people with some learning disabilities, some autistic people um, may find some aspects of that difficult, and, and we don't want to be in a situation where we we're, we're finding effective new solutions that that uh, deter people mm. um, with disabilities. That would that would be a, a, I mean, there there are advantages if you've got mobility issues, for example, a virtual. Um, uh, a virtual interviewing system can be a, a massive boon, but so there are. But I think there are a lot of these nuances mm. um, that we have to we have to work we have to work out as a, as a sector, as a group, as a as a, a set of colleagues um, to understand the pros and cons, the good the good points and the bad points. There are bound to be there are bound to be unforeseen consequences, all sorts of unforeseen consequences. Some will be good, some will be bad. We just need to identify them quickly and deal with. I think what you're saying there as well is in any change, whether it's technology, whether it's um, the labor market, whatever the thing is, there's always some people who will be, um, there'll be an advantage for them and there'll be other yeah. people who get disadvantaged by it. And that's always yeah. most difficult when the change happens. But then once it's changed and we can see these new established norms, we tend to then try to adapt to help the people who are now disadvantaged in that system. But there's this gap in this change, yeah. isn't there? That, that's right. And I think big, 
there, there are pros and cons. This has all happened very rapidly, and it's happened to everybody. Mm. So, you know, there, there are very few people who have that, – that, the, the pandemic has been extremely democratic in that respect. There are no groups of people who've had no effect of the pandemic. Uh, looking, looking at the data and looking at uh, reports, the agriculture sector, farmers haven't been quite as affected uh, as, as most people. A lot of their colleagues um, tend not to be obvious COVID sufferers if you're a, you know, a dairy farmer um, and so on. Um, but apart from those, apart from those people, we've we've all been hit. Everybody has been. Everybody's in the same boat. And so we need to identify. We we need to identify those people who are at particular disadvantage. And do what we can to overcome it. And I, I'm confident. I'm optimistic that that will happen. Mm. And so, um, so what are the advantages for any employers going through a recession? What things, um could be beneficial to you as an organisation? Well, I mean, pragmatically, and we've touched on one of the crucial ones, this pandemic has forced a lot of people to innovate. Mm-hmm. A lot of, uh, and it's forced a lot of organisations that would otherwise be extremely risk-averse to innovate. And by and large, a lot of that innovation has been tremendously beneficial. I mean, you probably won't feel that way if you're in a cafe in a seaside resort right now. And I, I, I can absolutely understand that. Um, but um, for many, many businesses, and particularly graduate recruiting businesses, um, you know, we, we, we've seen we've seen uh, innovation. We've seen a, uh, a culture of innov- more of a culture of innovation being fostered, um, and I think it will leave businesses just that little bit less concerned about taking that leap to um, to adopt some of these some of these solutions. Um, it's actually, as I say, it's actually been tremendously democratic in some ways. Unfortunately, um, disadvantaged groups will be um, will be more disadvantaged, but, but we've all been hit by it. Um, and it's been reassuring and refreshing to see a lot of employers really take seriously well-being issues amongst their their staff and mm-hmm. and and, um, and their prospective recruits. I mean, one thing we have to stress is that we say now that we're more like to see extensive extra um, homeworking. However, one thing that we don't know about um, is what the long-term well-being effects of extended periods of homeworking are. We don't know what the, the mental health effects are. Um, I've put on about eight stone, <laughs> approximately. Um, but we do know the physical effects. Um, people are getting less exercise. They're getting out less um, uh, uh, because of... You know, a lot of people have had to jury-rig their own workspaces at home that, you know, simply don't have the workplace assessments, health safety workplace assessments, that seems, you know, can seem a bit of a faff when you're doing them. But when you're at home and realise that you don't know how to adjust your chair properly and your back's giving you after a day of work, you realise that they're actually quite useful. Um, so an appreciation of some of those some of those issues are going to be quite, quite useful. And, of course, at the end of this, um, there will be new business opportunities. Be new ideas, be new ways of thinking, be new business opportunities. Um, we will likely come out of this with better systems for better and more diverse systems for recruitment. Um, work placement is a challenge, but there are a lot of very smart new systems coming out. Um, I've, I've been looking at one today um, coming out of um, University of East Anglia, that was really impressive. Um, 
Uh, and, and so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll expect to see um, more diverse, more effective um, and um, more adaptive and responsive set of work placement and work experience opportunities. Um, and, and businesses in general, once they've made it out to the other side, uh, well, you know, they will have, they will disrupt tested an awful lot of crucial business plans and they'll come out with staff and will come out with resilient, um, adaptable, battle hardened staff who will be in future more able to take, um, whatever, um, life and events throw at them. <laughs> so, you know, we, one of the things that students keep asking is, uh, keep asking me is what, you know, what am I going to say on my CV about this? My work placement process was, my work placement was cancelled, my apprenticeship was cancelled, you know, I'm not, my, my Saturday job was cancelled. What I've been able to do, and I've been saying, well, you know, you've been through this. We've all been through this. And if you explain how you, you know, you kept your mates together and you kept your own head together as best you could and you, you, you looked after each other, it will strike a real chord with all the people around the interview table who will have done the same thing. And that's the one real thing you will have in common. You'll have all, we'll have all been through the pandemic together. We'll have all done broadly the same thing to keep on the flow. And I think that understanding will be really valuable. Yeah, a couple of the biggest trends coming out of ISE data over the last few years, uh, you've touched on one there, is that resilience. That's usually the most sought-after uh, skill that <laughs> uh, graduate employers think students lack um, and students think they have it. But often it's really hard to communicate it or talk about it. But you've highlighted there, bang, we've, we've now got. Uh, everyone got it now. It should be on TV. Yeah, so <laughs> hopefully uh, work out that one nicely. Um, and renegs as well. There's a lot yeah. of talk about how renegs were increasing yes. um, over the last few years and we were quite concerned about it. And it was oh, why students being so choosy. Well, this surely flips that completely on its head. Well, who's reneging their job now? It, well, I mean, actually, and I don't know if I should give spoilers, but I have seen the new ISE report, and they are still, Ooh. obviously they've come down, but yeah. they're still happening. But what's probably happening is you've got this, this cohort, I mean, at least part of it is you've got this cohort of high-achieving graduates who apply for all the graduate schemes um, and get their pick, basically, and then they play them one off and one off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we know that one of the interesting facts, one of the interesting things that we know from cohort studies of students and graduates that about somewhere between one in twelve one in one in six, one in eight and one in six of any given cohort are largely focused on maximizing their salaries. The rest of us are not the rest of us are not. Um, I mean obviously a good salary is an important factor, but other things are more important. But between one you know, between between twelve and sixteen percent of any grad, given graduating cohort, their main focus is getting paid as much as they possibly can. And obviously, they're a really useful group for some jobs. I mean, they're, they're the people who want your sales teams, for example. Um, but they can be quite high maintenance. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, you, you, they're the ones who are, they're, that's, it's probably that group who are doing, who are still doing a bit of the old Renegade. Oh, <laughs> still there. They have yeah. an appetite for risk if they think it's going to give them financial yeah. benefit. Well, but, I think we're yeah, that, group, that group has come down. Yeah, well, we're talk- I guess we're talking about certainly the the top minority, really, aren't we? Um, I'm not sure if you saw the um, Panorama documentary um, recently uh, on BBC I- or BBC BBC iPlayer. Now, saw uh, it's called um, "Has COVID uh, Stolen My Future?" 
Um, yes. Yes. And it was really, really good documentary, like really insightful and yeah. obviously highlighted a, a bunch of people there that may be able to, to um, renege on jobs because they've got so many offers and that's very good for them. But there's plenty of people out there that obviously aren't as lucky as that and very no. fortunate uh, position to, to do so. Um, and it's a really interesting watch, actually. I'd highly recommend anyone um, watching it. I, BBC yeah. iPlayer. I, I mean, I mean, the reality is that it is a very, very serious job market. And most of the discussion that, that our analysts are having are along the lines of: Is this how, how bad is this? Is this is this merely really bad, or is this the worst year ever for graduates? Um, I'm, I'm, I will say, I'm tending on to, towards the it's merely really bad. I think it, uh, the data that we have suggests that it's comparable to the last recession, which was which was pretty grim. Mm. Um, That's what you'd expect, right? If we have hit a recession and it compares to the last recession, that's yeah. like for like and... I mean, the, the, the GDP... Well, what's interesting is the GDP drop. I mean, the GD, GDP dropped 20% in April. A mm. fifth of the economy went in April. Um, it's extraordinary. We've never seen anything like that. But even then, um, as I say, because of... And because a lot of crucial employment sectors went into the recession actually on the quiet, really struggling to find graduates um, in things like IT, engineering, many forms of business services, health, education. Um, and so they've, they've really done everything they can to avoid laying people off. They haven't necessarily been recruiting, but they haven't been, they haven't been laying people off. Um, and, and so, you know, we and, – and they're also expecting this to end – Possibly quite abruptly as well. So do bear in mind that the end, if a va- if a vaccine comes out, for example, or some treatment, this whole situation might end actually in again in economic terms extremely quickly. Recessions generally tail off, but if if you know we ba- this is likely to end in some way with basically restrictions being lifted and us getting on with. Mm. whatever is out on the other side of it. And it's like it's happened quite quickly, and businesses are well aware when that happens, they need to they need to be staffed up. And they're, all, they're well aware that at that point, you might see a rather a rather unexpected, for many people, free-for-all for talent. Because <laughs> um, a lot of people can put their recruitment plans on hold, and once they've got an idea, mm. you know, if, if so if you can imagine a situation where a vaccine comes out in March and is distributed, and the government says, right, Lockdowns, you know, we, we're gonna we're gonna maintain some social distancing and some shielding, but basically go about your business. You'll see a, you'll see a serious surge in the economy, and you'll see businesses needing to staff up all at once in the process. Yeah, and, and they'll all need to do it at once, and and, yeah. and you know, they're mindful that that's a possibility. So, yeah. you know. So whilst the job market for graduates is very, very bad, the majority should still get jobs. That's the thing to bear in mind. We've never been anywhere near a situation where half of all graduates couldn't get jobs. We're, we're, we're out of work. So what's the what's, what's been the worst situation? How many of them? So we used to be because because the the, the standard the standard metric was was the old first destination survey, Delhi, as we came to know it. But yeah. in fact, in actual fact, that had been going on since the early sixties. So we had a great time series to work with. Well, the worst we ever had was 80, 82, where it was, it was 14.5%. Right. And, and what is it in a usual year? In a usual year, it's about uh, – so last year, um, it was about uh, 5.5%. Right. So it's about 10%. We were in a decent, we were in a decent graduate labour market. Normally, you would say 
um, you'd, you'd see a normal, reasonably healthy economy without too many skill shortages um, around six to six and a half percent after six months. Um, in the last recession, it got up to um, nine. That's as right. high as it got. Um, and it's, at its worst, in the 90s, it got to over 10%, got to around 11 to 12. I mean, in the 80s, it got up to 13 to 14%. I don't think we... I don't think at the moment the data that we have suggests 14%, but I think 9 or 10 is far from out of the question. So in a worst-case scenario, we're saying um, in, in the history of the data that we've got over the last, say, 40 years or so, the difference from a normal year to the worst year is about a 10% increase. We're, we're, we've seen about a doubling in the proportion of graduates out of work. Right, because sometimes... Well, think- but we, so, so we'd be looking at... To give, to give you an example, um, if we were to extrapolate from figures from the last recession, we'd be looking at about fifty-five to 60,000 graduates out of work, which is a lot of graduates, but the majority would be either in work or doing a postgraduate qualification. Now, we do know an awful lot of graduates have, have, have gone for the sanctuary of PG. And we also know, for example, you know, comfortably the biggest source of graduate jobs is nursing. And if you graduated this year as a nurse, Hell, you started work before you even graduated, <laughs> let alone let alone after. You know, let alone after. So we we have to be have to be sang- sanguine about this. This is a very very difficult job market. You know, if you're graduating with a good two one in history, say I shouldn't keep using history as an example. But so so we'll, we'll take my own. We graduated with a good two one in chemistry, my own discipline. The jobs market is very tough, but there are not no jobs for you. You may have to be. Um, you will have to be innovative. You'll have to think outside the box a little bit. You'll have to really work on on, on selling your skills and, and do work with the university because they're really, really keen to help you out. But at the same time, you're not geographically limited. Businesses, There are businesses out there who still want to offer people jobs. There are still literally hundreds of thousands of open vacancies in the UK, literally hundreds of thousands. The majority at the moment, we've got to a situation where probably at least 50% of the jobs available in the UK are graduate level. So so do bear in mind that the non-graduate job market got hit hardest and worst, and particularly so in this recession because uh, the retail industry, the hospitality industry, um, bars, cafes, pubs are primarily staffed by non-graduates. But there's an important caveat there um, and one that has, has an important implication for the HE. They're also staffed by students doing term time work to pay for their studies. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got a big, big worry there about um, about students actually being able to fund their university studies studies at all. So we do need to keep an eye on that. And, and also bear in mind, if there's a large scale dropout this year, in three years' time, with you know, unless something like this happens in three years' time, the labour market will be very much better. And it's quite likely to look more like the labour market of 2013, 2014, 2015. Um, where we started to see serious skill shortages, we might start to see a really serious shortfall of graduates to drop out this year. Right. Do you think, though, that um, uh, when we look at situations like this, whenever we're in a particular um, situation, particular things get highlighted that are actually there all the time? So, for example, the number of people who would like to become a solicitor um, most people who want to become one can't. There's about something like 30,000 people for about 5,000 yeah. jobs. And during right. the deepest recession, it might reduce to 4,500. But actually, most of the people who actually are trying to do it can't do it anyway. But then we get a feature in the news saying, you know, um, 
only one in six law students becomes a solicitor. Well, actually, that's always the case. It's just we're highlighting it now. And that's absolutely right, Jack. And that that is always the case. Law is law is a particularly good example. That's absolutely right. The majority of law graduates don't become lawyers. That, that's not to say they don't they don't do valuable qualifications because those degrees and the and um, you know, very very rigorous degrees and provide an awful lot of skills. Mm-hmm. And, and employers tend to be very very pleased when they get law graduates um, uh, applying for their roles. Uh, one of the one of the interesting features of the last recession um, and a similar topic is. Um, as often happens, the construction industry got hit very hard, very fast. And it meant in 2011, um, we suddenly saw a lot of architects who couldn't get jobs hitting the general labour market and going on some big graduate training schemes, um, where they were very well received. In 2012, when the, when the construction industry started to improve, I started getting calls from a lot of employers going, what happened to all the architects who were applying for our jobs? They were brilliant. They <laughs> Um, well, sorry, you've got to manufacture a recession if you want them back now. They've all gone back to do architecture. Um, but you do see this when you see um, particularly specialist graduates in, in highly professionalised occupations like law hitting the general labour market. You're right, Jack, it's absolutely right. Um, the attrition rate of lawyers from the law industry is very, very high. Um, it's It may get slightly worse. The last recession was a bit unusual because... We saw failure of medium-sized law firms in the UK, which is very unusual. Hmm. Um, and billable hours dropped quite substantially. Um, it might not be so bad this time around. Um, law is law is a profession that can be done reasonably effectively virtually. Um, and a lot of organisations, you know, there's, there's nothing around that suggests a, a, a reduction in um, need for legal services. So we might see things being a little bit better, but that doesn't mean that you'll see much of a change in that kind of stat. Mm-hmm. And, and you, some, some of these things, you're right, will continue. You know, disadvantaged students are disadvantaged, and we call them disadvantaged because they don't, you know, for one reason or other, they suffer disadvantages in the labour market. They may be disproportionately affected, but they were still disadvantaged before this happened. Um, you know, we were short of nurses. So, you know, going to hard-pressed hospitals and going, where are all the nurses? We were short of nurses already. Um, so, so there are some things that are being highlighted that always happen. Right. Well, um, I just wanted to ask you one final question, um, yeah. it, it, which is a question we ask all of our guests. Is there anything that we haven't asked you yet that we should have asked you? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> well, the hardest one of the belt, isn't it? Have you got a couple of <laughs> No, um, it's, it's – uh, I think I've covered all the crucial points. I think one, one final point. Um, that I'd like to cover, um, and one thing that makes this recession unusual is the fact that the highly urbanised centres um, have been hit more heavily um, proportionally than less urban urban centres. Um, it's normally the other way around. Um, the last recession started in the finance industry, um, hit London first, and then London was first out. But London actually weathered it quite well. Um, in the finance industry. I mean, obviously, this has been very different. The finance industry has experienced it in a very different way. But um, proportionately, London has actually been the most affected city in the UK simply because so many workers have started working from home and that's had a knock-on effect on, on the whole of the London service economy. That's very, very different to pretty much every other recession we've ever had. Right. Um, um, and that's basically, um, and you know, without overblown metaphor, that's basically what happens in wars rather than in recessions. Um, and, and I think the consequences and um, 
implications and effects of that could be quite profound and will take some time to play out. The optimist in me says that it may help to rebalance the economy a little bit away from the cities and back mm. towards towns and rural centres that, that badly need that. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but I think that, that's, a, that's a, a very important difference from previous sessions. And it, it means that some of the crucial trends, I mean, one of the crucial things that happened in the, in the last recession was that you start to see concentration, much more com- and much more rapid concentration of skilled work in the big cities. Not just London, but here in the Northwest, um, Manchester gobbled up large parts of the Northwestern professional services industry, Leeds likewise in West Yorkshire, um, Birmingham in the, in the Middle East, and it was at the detriment of, of other cities in the region, um, at least at the outset. That may not happen this time, and that's, that's probably also... Um, if I'll be if I'll be honest, even as a, a proud adoptive Mancunian, it's probably not a bad thing. What a good way to end. Well, uh, Charlie, thank you so much. That's been so insightful, um, and there's a lot to crunch through there. But I think, in summary, you, you've painted obviously a very realistic picture and what's happening, but quite a positive picture in many ways. That there's, there's quite a lot of positives that actually come out of this. There's many opportunities that we're finding. Um, if you haven't found them already. Uh, and actually, we are adapting fast. Everyone's ad- adapting fast and we're innovating at a rate we've uh, never done um, so before. Um, and actually, that's you know, yeah, providing lots of opportunities, certainly from a labour market in terms of where you can apply as a graduate uh, in certain areas. It's maybe not the, the plan that a lot of graduates had when they uh, went to university or studied a certain course. But actually, being adaptable, trying to think what how you can progress your career straight away uh, is going to be really important and then hopefully try and get back on the track you wanted to get into um, maybe in, in a couple of years but might have to be a bit more patient that's the, the message I'm hearing that's right I mean if you if you graduated this year you've got a 45 career year career ahead of you so it might seem like a big deal right now but in 30 years time you know you, if you if your career plan slipped by a couple of years, it might not be back a bit, but in the grand scheme of things, hopefully it won't be too much of an impediment to your to your life going forward. Well, thank you very much, um, Jack. Shall we, shall we end there? Were yeah, you done? lovely. Yeah, thank you very much, Charlie. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I've been Ollie, and I've been Jack, uh, and that's been the <laughs> Early Careers Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Ta-da. For all things early career recruitment, the strategies to help you succeed will help you work with Generation Z with all the information that you'll need. It's the Jack and Ollie Show.